that you know, and when you get to introduce them to other people, it feels like a kind of unleashing of sorts. And I'm excited today to unleash to you uh, my friend, Dr. Robbie Waddell. The, uh, the first time that I met Dr. Waddell was in 2015 at the Praxis Conference that we hosted in Houston. And I was so captured by Dr. Waddell because he is a, a, a scholar, an academic, a pastor, but he's also deeply, deeply involved in the work of social justice and how do we actually start to change systems in ways that make sense, in ways that actually reflect the gospel. And so the first time I ever met Dr. Waddell, he told us a story about these health clinics that he had started, or helped to start and to fund in, uh, in not in Houston, in, uh, where are you from? Lakeland. Lakeland, Florida. And these are clinics that are completely free to the people who come and need these services. And I remember hearing that and thinking, that's gospel work. And so today, Dr. Waddell is here, not just to uh, worship with us and to speak to us today, but uh, this evening at 5 p.m., he's actually being ordained a priest which we're very excited about and want to invite all of you to come and join us at 5 p.m. to celebrate that with us. So without further ado, Dr. Waddell, welcome him as he comes. Uh, thanks so much, Father Paul. It is, it is great to be with you and Bishop Ed and Bishop Owens's and my, my good buddy, Chris Green. Um, there was a point in my life where I'm, one of my claim to fames really was that I was Chris Green's pastor. Um, but then he moved from Lakeland back to Tulsa and I can't say that anymore. But uh, greetings to you uh, from my church, Oasis Community Church in Lakeland. Uh, you might not know them and they might not know you very well, but we very much feel akin to you. We're like your little sister. Uh, so if you ever do come to Central Florida outside of Tampa and Lakeland, we'd be happy for you to be there with us. This gospel passage today um, strikes me a bit like a post-credit scene from a Marvel film. So I don't know if everyone knows what I'm talking about, uh, but the Marvel films have been very popular the last 10 years or so. And one of the things that they have made popular is these post-credit scenes. So you'll see the movie, and when I say Marvel, I mean the... Um, superheroes, you know, Iron Man and Thor and Spider-Man and the like. And at the end of the film, after the film is over, the credits start to roll and they've trained us now to sit in the theater and to watch a little bit more to see this little snippet that comes afterwards. And in that snippet, it's often humorous, but it also kind of predicts a bit of what the next film will be like. So the Gospel of John really comes to an end at chapter 20. In fact, I think historically there was a time when the gospel literally ended with chapter 20. So chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we didn't read it today, but it says this. It says, Jesus did many other signs that are not written down in this book, but what has been written down has been written down so that you might believe, and in believing, you might receive eternal life. Now, fade to black. I mean, that's the end. That is a summary statement if I have ever heard a summary statement. These things have been written down so that you might believe. And in the world of theater, we might even call that breaking the fourth wall because everything else in the gospel has been contained in the narrative world, right? We've seen Jesus, we've seen his disciples, and we're like spectators, like watching it the same way we watch a film. But at that point, 
the, the gospel is now breaking through and addressing us as readers, as those who are hearing the gospel. This has been written down for you, right? So, as in typically, when it fades to black, we didn't see, start to see a list of names. And that's exactly what happens here. There's Simon Peter, there's Andrew, there's James and John. I'm like, oh yeah, these are the characters I've seen in the story. And then breaks open this post-credit scene. And it's a fishing story. So they've gone fishing, but they haven't gone fishing like recreationally. Like Peter was occupationally, vocationally a fisherman. And the last time we had seen Peter, he had denied verbally that he even knew Christ. So if we track kind of the character arc of Peter in the gospel, it goes something like this. Jesus, early on, had fed the multitude. And the next morning, he had kind of snuck away, and the multitude, the crowd, have come to find him. And they're like, hey, dinner last night was great. What's for breakfast? (laughs) And so Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, hmm, thanks, but no thanks. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 66, it's serendipitous, but it's, I love it. John 666 says this, that many of his disciples no longer followed him. And so when people walked away because Jesus' words were too harsh, he turned to his disciples and said to them as a group, well, what are you guys going to do? And Peter's the one who speaks up and he says, Lord, where else will we go? But you're the one who has life for us. And so you see all of this faith in Peter, all of this kind of expectation, this, this ambition even. So then if we track the story, it's at the night before Jesus will be crucified. He's serving them the meal and he gets up and he changes his clothes and he dresses up like a servant and he, he proceeds to wash the feet of the disciples. And he washes all of their feet, Andrew and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and even Judas. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, well, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, listen, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be my disciple. And Peter's response is not exactly what you might expect. As opposed to just saying, okay, Lord, I want to be your disciple, do as you wish. Peter tries to instruct him as to what to do. Well, in that case, then also wash my head and my hands as well. Peter's still kind of large and in charge, right? He's still kind of wanting to be in control. And Jesus says, the one who has bathed has no need to wash except for the feet. Now, if we take that literally, then Peter was asking Jesus for a bath and Jesus was denying him. (laughs) But as I'm sure Father Paul and others from here have taught you, that taking the Bible literally is not what we ought to do. We should take it seriously, literarily, theologically, spiritually. Like what is being said when he says the one who has bathed has no need to wash except for the feet. And he's talking about baptism. The one who has baptized has no need to be rebaptized, right? We don't do that in, 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 typically in Christian practice. Baptism is kind of once and for all. But, but the foot washing was this a second washing, right? It was a washing after baptism. It was a cleansing. It was a preparation. So the same way that water functions as a sign of cleansing in our baptism, foot washing functions as a sign of a cleansing in the life that we've lived, right? So he proceeds then to wash Peter's feet. But Peter doesn't quite seem to learn the lesson still yet, right? 
So he's received the meal from Jesus. He's received the foot washing from Jesus. But Jesus then predicts um, his betrayal. And they're all like, well, I'm not, you don't think I'm the one that's going to betray. And as Jesus predicts his betrayal, they get an argument, not about who they think is going to betray Jesus or not. They get an argument about which of one of them they think is the greatest. So if the, if the disciples do anything for us, they do give us an example of sometimes we make the wrong choices. Now we have to remember, these are the folks that would then go on and spread the gospel and kind of establish the church by the power of the Spirit. So we don't want to shortchange them anyway, but certainly the gospel does present them as flawed characters. So they've argued about which is the greatest, and now Jesus responds to that and saying to Peter, like before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And Peter's like, there's no way that's going to happen. Like, I, I would die for you. And of course, what we see is um, that night they leave the meal, they go to the garden, Jesus prays, his closest disciples are there sleeping, Jesus is arrested, and as Peter makes his way into the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus is now being tried, and this um, woman identifies Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. And he says, no, that's not me. And later he's identified again and he swears, I swear to God, this, I don't know this guy, right? And then a third time he says that he doesn't know Jesus. And then the rooster crows. Now, that's really the last time we see Peter kind of signaled out. Like Peter is in the group that has seen like in the gospel passage that Father Paul read for us, it said this is the third time that Jesus had been seen since his resurrection. So the first time it was a group of disciples and it says Thomas wasn't there. The second time it was all of them and Thomas was there. But Peter himself is not signaled out. So the last time we see Peter signaled out, he's actually saying, I don't know Jesus. So if we compare a bit of Peter to Judas, so Judas will betray Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus. And we might like to think in and of ourselves, I would never do that, right? I, I would never betray Jesus. I would never deny Jesus. But the verbal denial of Jesus is not where our problems start. It's the result of a life that is lived kind of denying the power of Christ. Like when we try and kind of do things ourselves out of our own efforts and out of our own will, we'll eventually work in ways <clears throat> that discount who Jesus really is. So uh, Paul was saying that some of the work that we've done in Lakeland is with a collection of churches that um, it's a social action group and we um, work with, if that's the right term, uh, the county commissioners and the sheriff's office and the school board to kind of promote justice, whether it's healthcare or mental health care or, or juvenile justice reform or what have you. That, that work is easy, uh, could easily be done kind of out of our own efforts in which our faith becomes a thin veneer that lays over it. Like, we think that the work of God will only happen if we do it, as though the kingdom of God is going to come by our own efforts. 
And what eventually we'll do in our lives, if we think that we do the work of God in our lives, that is a functional form of atheism. We're not saying, I don't believe in God, but we're acting like I don't believe in God. Like we're not actually trusting in God to be the giver of life, and God to be the provider of our needs, and God to be the provider of our joy or of our health or of our of, of the fullness of our lives. And we think we have to work it out ourselves. And I think this is part of Peter's problem, right? Peter is full of himself and he thinks that he can do it, right? Right? He's the one who's told Jesus, where else can we go? He's the one who said, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. He's the one who, at, before he, uh, I skipped this part of the story, before he denies Jesus with his words, He's already denied Jesus with his actions because as they come to arrest Jesus, he has a sword and he takes his sword out and he cuts this guy's ear off. Now, I think it's important to note, he doesn't cut off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. He cuts off the ear of a slave of of the high priest, the Jewish high priest. So it probably wasn't the most intimidating person, right? But nevertheless, he's still kind of doing it himself, even though he's already received the meal. He's already had his, you know, his feet washed. He's still this other Peter, right? He's yet to become who he really is. And so then his actions, I think, lead him to the point where he is denied Christ in his actions so much that eventually he denies Christ with his words. And so now Jesus has been crucified, and they all think it's over. And then unexpectedly, Jesus is back. He's been resurrected. But what is Peter to think about himself? Like, where is he supposed to fit in the story now? And the original version of the gospel comes to an end saying, hey, Jesus did all these things so that you might believe and believing you might have eternal life. But what about Peter? And now in our post-credit scene, we see a story of Peter. And what is he doing? He's fishing. He's gone back to his lifestyle. He's, he's not spreading the gospel. He's not establishing the church. He's not doing all the things that, that the Spirit might empower him to do, that God had called him to do, that Jesus had trained him to do, because he feels like, at that point, I've denied Christ. I've denied Christ in the way I behaved, and I've denied Christ with my very words multiple times, saying, I don't know him. Those three times that he denied Christ, it says that he was by a charcoal fire, There's only two references to fire in John's gospel, and both of them are called a charcoal fire, like a campfire. One is in the courtyard of the high priest where Peter is warming himself as he says, no, I don't know that guy. I swear to God, I don't know that guy. If I wasn't in church, I would swear a little bit more, right? (laughs) Because I think that's what Peter's doing, right? When he says, no way, no how do I know him, right? Then on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has built a fire, a charcoal fire, and he's cooking some fish. And he says, hey, why don't you bring some of the fish you caught over here? And so there stands Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. And he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you, you know everything. You know I love you. Then tend my lambs. And he asked him for a third time, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, oh. It grieved him because he asked him three times. So last time he was by a fire, three times he had denied Christ. And that had led him to walking away from God. And now God in Christ is calling him back and standing him by a very fire and asking him three times, do you love me? Now, sometimes um, you'll hear ministers want to differentiate these different words for love, um, but there are two different words for sheep in the passage and there are two different words for no, and just trust me on this, they're all being used as synonyms. That's, that's, uh, that's much to do about nothing. That's, that's leading us down a trail that's not very helpful. In the, in the big picture of things, three times he had denied Christ, and so three times now he is saying he loves Christ. And he's being commissioned, right? So this is a call. It is renewing Peter's call to be a disciple, an apostle. And this is a, a conversion of sorts. He is changing from his do-it-yourself way to the rely-on-God way. And it's a commissioning. He's been given something to do, right? To care for the sheep. And as always in John's gospel, the moral of the story literally follows a line that says, hey, pay attention, this is the moral of the story, right? In our King James, it said, verily, verily, right? Today's translation, I think, said truly. So truly, like this is the point. When you're young, you kind of did what you wanted to do. You were a do-it-yourself kind of guy, Peter. But when you grow old, someone will, will change your clothes. They'll put a belt on you. They'll take you where you don't want to go. And we know this is the case in life. Like, we start fairly dependent, right, on our parents. And slowly but surely, we become more independent. Slower for some than others. I have six girls, right, ages 31 to 10. So if you haven't prayed for me before, you'll start praying for me now. And so we have this, we think that maturity is increasing levels of independence, right? So we were very dependent. We learned to feed ourselves and tie our shoes. We've become more independent. Then we can drive more independence. Then we can start to pay our own bills. Not exactly sure what age that happens. Right? We become more independent. So we think maturity is increasing levels of independence. But it's not true. Because if you wait, when you truly become mature, it becomes increasing levels of dependence. To be spiritually mature, and for that matter, to be physically mature, to actually grow old, is to realize that what it means to be mature is to depend on someone else. And in particular, I think it means to depend on God. And that's what's happened with Peter. So as in any good post-credit scene, right, it sets us up for the sequel. And the canonical sequel, if we're reading through the Bible, the, the biblical sequel to John is Acts. And the next thing we see in Acts is this big event on the day of Pentecost. And who is the keynote speaker? But Peter. 
Had we not had this little post-credit scene where Peter gets rehabilitated, the last time we would have seen him, he would have been saying, I swear to God, I don't know who Jesus is. And then he's the keynote speaker at the day of Pentecost. We're like, I don't want to listen to that guy. He's an apostate, right? What's, what's the term for, for, for the wavering priest? He's a vagante. Can't trust that fella. No, but... But because we've seen Peter rehabilitated, right? Because now we know that, that Peter has responded to Christ and that Peter is, is depending on Christ. It's not going where he wants to go. He's being led where he, he's supposed to go. And so I think we can see that in our own lives, right? That we haven't saved ourselves. We, it wasn't just that we made a decision. This all began because we were called. God is the initiator, right? Salvation is the Lord's, the psalmist says. God has called us. And God converts us from what some would call our false selves, our projected selves, into our true selves, our full selves, like who we were made to be, who we, the identity we find ourselves in Christ. There is another uh, passage. Um, we didn't read it, but it goes with today's lectionary. It's also of a, of a calling, a conversion, and a commission. It's in Acts chapter 9, and it's a, it's a famous text. It's of Apostle Paul, right? Before he was the Apostle Paul, I guess. So he was, he was a very zealous Pharisee. He, he was uh, arresting and beating and sometimes putting to death, as in the case of Stephen, Folks who would follow this Jesus, this would-be Messiah, this crucified Messiah. Ugh. Right? Even to say it, right? How could anybody believe that God's Messiah would have been crucified by Rome? So Paul has this kind of dual expectation, right? One is this, this, this message that Jesus is Messiah yet was crucified is anathema to him. And then the way in which the gospel is then spreading to be inclusive of others is also anathema, right? Like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of somewhere else. And he's the God who can come and deliver and save, not the God who will come and die. That's ridiculous. But then not unlike Peter, he has an encounter with the risen Christ. And not unlike Peter, he too is called. He too is converted, not, not so much from one religion to another, but from an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah who was crucified, but he is also the Messiah who was resurrected. And so now he's commissioned to go, and he converts from a man of violence and exclusion to a man of peace and inclusion. And that's what I think we're all then called to, right? To, to convert from our sense of this is just for us and not them, right? If there's ever an impulse in our culture, it is to identify the other and distance them, right? So it's not an us versus them and violence is sometimes necessary to protect us from them. Two, it is an us for them and if violence is necessary, then let it be done to me. So we don't serve a God 
who comes and kills in the name of truth. We serve a God who came and died in the name of love. And that's what Paul met on the road to Damascus. And that's who Peter met on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I believe that's who we meet every Sunday when we come to the table. And we receive the invitation of peace. And we pray these things, right? We talk about the Holy Spirit coming down upon these elements and making them the body of blood of Christ so that when we partake of them, we might become the body of Christ and sent out into all the world. So you, my friends, can find yourselves in this story, just like Peter and just like Paul, one who has been called by God, one who has been converted by your encounter with God, and one who is now being commissioned to go and be Christ in your families, in your places of work, in your schools, in the grocery stores. These songs that we sang today were so appropriate that God's love has made me alive, made me into a garden, that, that the one who was broken or wounded has healed me. Like we've already sung, one of my thoughts were, instead of preaching, I could have just said, hey, can we just sing those songs again? And we just hear it one more time because they were so beautifully done. But I think this, this message today, not just the message that I'm preaching, but the, the message from the gospel and from Acts is just that, that in this season of Easter, we celebrate the resurrection and all that that means and the transformation of the very creation, which includes, of course, us. Amen? Amen. God bless.